0: Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices Podium, Dr. James Fallon. <clears throat> Thank you, Jennifer. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm violating two basic rules of giving talks. First of all, uh, if you're an academic, you never use personal pronouns. You definitely talk, talk about yourself. So, I'm violating a major thing. I told all my students never talk about yourself, never say I or anything like that. So, this is going to be a a, a narcissistic, uh, (laughs) embroiled uh, banquet, if you will. The second thing is never give a talk about your bad behavior close to home. Because somebody might be there. So, I have very close friends who showed up, and I I violated that too. So, I, I make sure that I do it. At least uh, give talks like this at least 200 miles from home, but it's a second violation, so I'm in trouble a little bit. Uh, so, you know, one one thing about um, being a professional is when you near retirement, you hope you go quietly, and and something happened where I it didn't go quietly, and it was something happened. It was a complete surprise, completely out of the blue, and I'm going to talk about that. So, but the first thing I want to talk about is, uh, who are we? This did say before here, who am I? But I'm trying to lower the number of personal pronouns when I said, who are we? And if you look at it from a biologist's point of view, I'm a neuroscientist, so I look at everything as sort of a biological machine, uh, which goes along with my heartlessness, so there's no conflict there. Now, if you look at it, uh, so I sat down uh, for about a week and tried to figure out how many individual kinds of human beings there can be over a million years. And so I started with the genetics and genomics, which is beyond the genetics, and started with the coding genes, 21,000, and then looked at all the regulators and the insulators and all these different uh, regulators of the genes, and also the possible expected number of mutations and other things we know that occur. These are things that used to be considered junk DNA, but it makes up most of our genome now. It used to be thought of just extra stuff in there, and it turns out to be very important. So I took all of those possible combinations and then added in uh, some environmental effects. And I did the, the math on this, kind of loosely. And, and, and what I came up with that, if you ask the question, how many unique human beings can there be? It's one times 10 to the 81st. That's one wow. sex That's a, this is a number, right? And it, it, it's eighty-one zeros after the one. So I looked at this, and I was, you know, and the the, the number looked funny to me. And I, I looked, I thought about it for about a day, and I said, I know what this number is. Well, uh, it turns out to be the number of atoms in the universe. So this really fed my old like growing up in the '60s, like we are stardust, man. You know, we are, because this is the number of possible human beings it could be. So there absolutely is never going to be anybody like you. And even, uh, even identical twins are not identical at all. And these are all identical twins, and you can see some of different colors, and of course we have different personalities, and they're really identical twins, but there's a thing called copy number variant, which is that these uh, copies of different genes, uh, like from your mother or father, you may get 10 copies of one gene that controls personality from your mother and only one from your father of that gene. So it's all this mix and match, so this adds to the level of complexity. Once you add that on, uh, then the number of uh, possible human beings over a 1 to 2 million-year pe- period is 10 to the 82nd power. I had to get to that number, you know what I mean? Just <laughs> and now, uh, I was asked to talk about my personal story. I ended up writing a book about this, uh, which you know took some time to uh, really consider whether to do it or not especially talking with my wife, you know. And, uh, and in, in that, I, I should start by saying who I am. Now, here's my family, my nuclear family. I had a very standard youth, what I always thought to be a standard youth. I had two honors. One was I was class clown at a large high school. I was always screwing around. And, uh, and the other thing is that I was a Catholic boy of the year in New York State. Now, you know how crazy you have to be to be a Catholic boy of the year at <laughs> the New York State? And I really, and you know, looking back at it with clinicians, I clearly had uh, OCD. And, and OCD from the time I was about 9 or 10 until about 15. And it's, it, but it was hyper-religiosity. And it's a type of OCD. And I've tried to keep some of that with me because it helps you complete projects, right? And, and I knew it was crazy. It wasn't a personality disorder. When you have OCD, PD, anything with a PD, a personality disorder, you think it's okay, but I knew it was crazy thinking, and I actually had to. At college, I, uh, I befriended a bunch of priests. I went to Catholic college in Vermont, and this one guy, this one priest, who I became friends, really good friends with, he says you got to get out of the church. He goes, you don't need this. You're like really wacky. So I had my last confession at 18, and that's when I left the church because I w- it just I-, I was too. It was pathological, and nonetheless, uh, I've been a professor at UCI since 1978. So I'm basically a potted plant here. And, <laughs> and I can't get away. But it's, it's wonderful here. And all the neuroscience and all the neuroscience something. Because here it's unique from the beginning because we interact with artists and engineers and people in law. It was neuro-something. And uh, so that, that's been wonderful. So I, I had a couple of chances to leave, but really this is a wonderful place. So at any rate, you could... My career, I consider myself, you know, a very happy and successful, reasonably successful in my career, which I uh, was going to retire early to do other things. Still do research, but not all the other stuff you have to do. And, um, and so I also, you know, the first date I ever had was with a 12-year-old girl. And she was 12, too. We're both 12. <laughs> so we're both 12. And we became very good friends for a few years and then started dating regularly since 16. So I've been with the same woman uh, since then. We've known each other forever. When we see each other, we know each other as kids and everything. Now, this does not look, if you look at a stable uh, family life and a stable job, this does not look like a psychopath at all. This is the opposite of a psychopath. So there's no way that I could be anything like a psychopath, you know, just by the, uh, anybody looking at this. So, and I've always considered myself a regular guy, a normal regular guy. So that's what I'm self-diagnosed as. Now, uh, as I went through uh, the career, I had a, a small lab. I liked a very intimate lab, only like 8, 10, 15 of us, and uh, worked on stem cells and all sorts of different things. I had what's called, I think, a Spielkas, which is ants in the pants, which is this drive to do all different stuff which makes your colleagues and the dean crazy because you, you're supposed to be like an expert in one thing. I, I, that always made me crazy. So using that spiel, because I did a whole lot of different kinds of research, and really focused a lot on adult stem cells through the mid-80s to mid-90s. But then we got a PET scanner in 1990, 1989 here. And my students from the late 70s, early 80s, who were now professors in psychiatry and radiology, they started bringing me all these scans to analyze, because I taught them neuroanatomy. right? And in, in, uh, even though over the years there's been a lot of like schizophrenia and Alzheimer's, and depression, a lot of drug abuse, things like that, addicts, but starting at 89 we started to have murderers uh, that would come in here, trickle in one or two a year. And so I'd look at these and that became a thing I did like maybe once or twice a year until 1990, uh, until 2005 when I got a whole bunch of these. So this was a completely quaternary. It wasn't a tertiary part of my research. Uh, you know, looking at the murderers, and it was just a side thing because it was just like looking at the brains of any path, you know any pathological condition, which I did a lot of. And so, at any rate, uh, this one year, two thousand and five, I got scans from all over the place, and f- using different techniques. So it was spec scan, PET, fMRI, all these different kinds of imaging, and then looking at them, uh, I, I told the, all my collaborators. I said. We've got to do this double blind so I don't know what you're sending me. And this was a key. Before that, I wasn't doing that because they wanted to talk about this murder and that murder. So you don't do science like that. So I said, send me normals, send me schizophrenics, send me, you know, a hundred different things, and then put anybody else in there. Well, after going through for a few months, these piles of different uh, uh, patterns in the brain that I saw uh, started to shake out. And, and there, were, there were ten in there that I knew were normal people. They just looked normal You can't tell if somebody's really normal, but it looks like a normal scan. Uh, Then there was another 10 that I knew was schizophrenics, because I'd seen a lot of schizophrenics. And then there was this other mixed bag. But in the mixed bag of these scans was an underlying pattern that is a common mode, some common pattern that was uh, in all of them. So even though some of them had holes in their head here and here and here, still there was this underlying pattern. And I said, is this the murderers group? And it was exactly right on, because they all had this pattern. And from that, I became really interested in 2005, because this, was, this is my video game. Is looking at patterns in, in brain scans and genetics, things like that. And so uh, here, was the, here was the pattern I saw. So this area, this is a slice of the brain. And now you're looking sideways, like this, in the middle of the brain. And in blue there, I, you know, all of them had this, these areas turned off. And so in the scanner, they were supposed to be turned on because we'd show people terrible pictures or things that evoked different kinds of empathy or just roses and dogs and things like that, a mix to really fill up all the brain areas. And all of these particular kind, the subset of murderers, this was turned off. And it turns out that these were psychopaths. So I said, ah. Uh, Now, if your impulsive murders look a bit different, there are different kinds of murders, but all the psychopaths look like this. So I really got interested in this. Now, at this time, and this is what, it's slightly spooky, because all of a sudden, and, and I was getting ready to retire, and it's like they wouldn't let me go. This wouldn't let me go. And, and so uh, something happened about the same year. So I'm looking at all these. Within the same six-month period, we happened to do a study on Alzheimer's. So we had all these patients, and we did scans on them to look for patterns of scans but also we were looking for the genes, uh, multiple genes that interacted that put you at risk. And so we had had all the patients we needed for this Alzheimer's study. This had nothing to do with the murders. And but we needed more control. So I, I made another error, which is I said, look, I get my whole family involved. Because they, they'll all say yes and they'll all go in there. Within a week it was over with. Had people, my family flying in, brothers, you know, my wife, myself, the kids, and everybody. And so we did those because well, first of all, they were normal, and, and they were high, you know, high enough functioning, generally. <laughs> and uh, and there were a mixed bag of people, of normals. But also, my wife's family had a lot of Alzheimer's in it. And lots of Alzheimer's. The mother, the father, brother, aunts, uncles. So, and I went to her, and I said, do you want to do this? Because you may not like what you find, you know? And it's like looking for Huntington's or something in your family. It's devastating if, if you find out bad news. And she was quite heroic about it. She says, what the hell? I mean, she had had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, 2000, 2001, and had overcome it. It it never came back, so it was great. And she goes, but at that time, she goes, I'm going to die of cancer before Alzheimer's, so let's do it. Then our kids, our grandkids will know maybe how to change their diet and their lifestyle to to ward it off. So we went ahead. I thought it was fantastic. I wouldn't have done that, but she did. And so uh, uh, what happened is we had PET scans. We had behavior, uh, behavioral measures, EEGs, genetics, all sorts of things. So a very complete sort of picture, especially at that time. And, and this is what showed up. And you can see uh, that there were six people up on top, and at the right, there's somebody who looks really different. And there's, you see that blue in the PET scan? That's no activity. And so um, this turned out to be, and that's my brain right there, my brain looked absolutely exactly like the worst pure psychopath I had seen. Now, and I said, I'd, I played this game before. Cuz even like in a lab, people play tricks on each other, right? Uh, and, and so I called in the, uh, the technicians and I said, okay, it's very funny, guys. You put, it, you know here it is. I say here's somebody who should not be walking around in public, in open society. And you put, you know, slipped it in, very funny. And they go, they go, no, we, this is, no, really. I said, you gotta check the pet machine, everything, the computer. For the providence, that is to make sure that this is really uh, one of us. And they came back and said, "That's absolutely one of your families." Oh man! So this was. Uh, so I had to peel back the name, and of course, at that point is is when Gandalf showed up at the door. <laughs> and and Gandalf, uh, it was like, okay, you're it. And of course, it was my name on that scan, and and it was it was sort of odd. And it wasn't until later that I, you know, some years later in. And my wife had reminded me that I went home, and within a week, I said, the damnedest thing. I said to Diane, the damnedest thing. I said, my PET scan looks exactly like, like a really bad case of psychopathy from all these other murders and psychopaths I was looking at. And she goes, it doesn't surprise me. And it was... <laughs> now, like people in the lab, you know, your mates and your friends are always like, oh, you're crazy or something like that. So I never thought about it. But things started to pile up. And... and and when you, when you look at the comments that people make in your life, including my friend Larry here over the years, uh, that they, it forms a pattern. But I didn't care about the pattern. And when people asked me, what, what did you do when you found this? I just laughed. I really just laughed. I said, I kind of get the joke. You know, this is like a, a great joke on me. And I just didn't believe it because I'm OK. And um, so I did what any scientist would do. And I said, my theory must be wrong. Well, over the next few years, Two other groups had did extensive analyses of murders, and a lot of psychopaths, and uh, who weren't murderers, but they're felons mostly, and they found the same thing I had found. So that the, the theory wasn't wrong. Uh, and but within that time, we had these wonderful findings with adult stem cells for both uh, advanced old stroke and also for Parkinson's. And we had like you know we we're curing rats hundred percent and. and and so uh, I had to raise about seven million dollars to get a company going, and, and all of that. That's what I cared about during that time. I didn't care about this stuff. It was, you know, it was just like a curiosity, and I didn't. It didn't matter anyway. I just didn't care. And uh, and we and we had, uh, you know, this Alzheimer's study, which turned out to be very, uh, turned out to be, I guess, correct. And uh, we found a new gene that was involved, uh, and in our other studies. So that really. Completely dominated my thinking. I didn't even think of this. And, but anyway, there it was. Well, genetics came back, and now there are genetics associated with psychopathy. But if they're not psychopathic genes. They're just genes that are associated with the traits of psychopathy. And so high aggression, low, uh, low emotional empathy, high cognitive empathy, uh, a certain uh, resistance to pain and anxiety. Uh, uh, there are genes that... Uh, well, the, the kind of genes when, you know, when you're caught doing something red-handed and you decide to do that, and you, and you get away with it. It's the Bill Clinton genes, really, of <laughs> denial. Are you going to believe me or your lying eyes, you know? And, and, and so all of these, uh, these genes have uh, alleles that are associated with the, and correlate pretty well with the traits of psychopathy. Well, it turns out I had all of them uh, uh, up until that point. So I had all... I had two of the biological markers, that is the genetic and genomic markers, but also the brain pattern. You know, from the, So these were two. This became curious at the time because I said why I should be a psychopath. So this was a, a curiosity, and I was somebody who always believed that, you know, genes really determine almost everything, and some, something was missing. Something was missing because I should have been a full-blown psychopath because everybody who has these markers uh, uh, usually is a, is a, a really a troublemaker a bit at the same time now this this is within the same month i saw the scans uh, we're at the uh, we're at a party at my house i go out fishing and we had all those al- albacores so i was cooking it up my mother came over and she taught me to cook so we always cook together and we have a bunch of 40 50 people and we're i'm trying to you know we're trying to uh, you know cook and she's going "jim come on come on you got to look at something one of your cousins gave me this book he was an editor back in New York of a newspaper, and also, uh, you know, a historian. And he said he sent me this book, and it's about your family. And she didn't say my family; she said your family. Well, <laughs> you got to. <laughs> and, and I said I said, I said we have people we got to feed. She was so excited. She's still alive. She's over hundred now, and she lives up here in Fountain Valley. So she's uh, and she's a, a very energetic type of uh, person, and uh, and pretty bright and devilish. And so she wanted, so we waited until the end of the party, and she f- were leafing through. And this is the story of the first killing of a mother by a son, the first case of matricide in the American colonies. It's like from 1668. And, and so this was the, and that guy is my grandfather. He's a direct grandfather. He's the first guy who killed his mother. First case of the But she goes, no, read further. <laughs> She's going, and so I'm going through. She said, this one, there's this one, and this one. So there's this line of them. And it's not just like, you know, having a, a good tale to tell about horse thieves in your family. Everybody's got these. There were kind of too many of them. Uh, and, and then it went all the way up, and it kind of uh, lost the trail in, in the book with a cousin of mine, which is Lizzie Borden. So Lizzie is uh, one of our one of the Cornells. We're all Cornells, and it turns out we're, that's our you know our name is Cornell. We're, Fallon was an adopted name. We were adopted by these Irish farmers, so uh, that was also a surprise. But so here it was, and I was wondering why she was so excited. Well, you know she's pure Sicilian, and growing up it was always like mafia stuff. There was always mafia talks, and all of my my aunts had mes- met, you know, married civilians, which are not, not Italians. and not, They're all like Irish men and everything. And so they were always giving my mother and our aunts the business about being like hoods. And my mother had been up to Lucky Luciano's place on a dynamite truck. The whole family were bootleggers. So there, there was stuff there, but they're really nice people. These are like minor crimes. This is the depression. Um, and so... This was really a chance to, for, for her to get even. So she says, see, it's your father's side all the time. And, you know, after that, uh, and there's, oh, but Ezra, Corn- Ezra Cornell is also our cousin. So I figured we're even. There's Ezra and there's Lizzie Borden. So one good and one bad. It's a wash, right? And, but in the, so after that, for a few years, my, my two cousins started to find all these other lines on my father's side, or on our father's side. And there were three lines with all these murderers that ultimately two of these lines went back to these English kings who were like really nasty, the really nasty English kings. So so there were like three full lines on my father's side of very violent people and pretty nasty people. And if they didn't kill people, they left their family and they stole stuff. And so so this is, you know... uh, if you if you look at your background, that's not genetics. But when you got three lines that are all like nasty, you start to wonder. So that was curious that it happened at the same time I was looking at these biological data, and it was it started to get spooky. But again, just too busy to do anything. There's the Sicilian side. Well, they are they're bakers, you know, and uh, and, and and Larry and I visited this shop. Remember in, in Sicily, and. Uh, And I did have a grandfather who was part of King Emmanuel's guard. You know, he was a cavalryman. But they were mostly just sweet people who liked to eat and drink. And uh, so anyway, shuttling toward the end of this several year period, I was contacted by the TED people to give a TED talk. And in talking with them, I wanted to talk about the bias against doing certain kinds of research, like stem cell research. The hot thing was embryonic. And I had something that had nothing to do with embryos. It was using your own stem cells that are resident in your brain to fix a problem. But they weren't interested in that. And I I'd like, you know, it was, I was so I said, look, there's bias going both ways in science, and, and so they said, yeah, but do you have anything that's a little snazzier, a little jazzed up? I said no, and I made the mistake, this is the fourth mistake, of t- I said, well, there's this other crazy thing. I don't think anybody's going to be interested, but I told them the story about the scans and the. They go, that's it, of course. Well, they have, since that, since that talk, they, they have not let me alone. I've, you know, some advisor with them and everything on new, new sorts of ideas for talks. And, and they've been great. But nonetheless, after that talk, it it kind of all hell broke loose. When we, that year, in 2009, we gave the talks. They weren't putting the talks up on, like, YouTube. But that year, it was the first year. So when we were giving talks, we figured that they'd put Al Gore up and Bill Clinton, you know, that, those would be up, but none of the rest of us schmucks would be up there. And, but they decided to put them all up. So about four months later, I started getting calls. I said, Jim, your TED Talk is up. I said, what? What are you talking about? They said, no, you got like 30,000 hits overnight. And I said, and I don't know anything about business, but I found something about marketing. If somebody puts a, you know, a YouTube video up, and the key word is psychopathic killers. You get 30,000 hits immediately, <laughs> no matter what you're saying. And so, and right after that, I started getting calls from producers and writers and everything. And, I, you know, I had the opportunity to get contacted by uh, Simon Mirren, Helen Mirren's uh, uh, nephew, who I've worked with since that time. He says, he says, I know what you're talking about. And he saw through it. And, and I learned to really listen to artists because they have insights of, of what is important. They have no idea how things happen, but they know what's important. Whereas scientists know how things work, but they don't know what's important. So it's a it's a it's a good marriage of ideas, and and so we've worked on stories together. But he said you got to come and act. He said we're going into the hundredth uh, or the ninety ninth episode of Criminal Minds. He was the showrunner of Criminal Minds, so I he had me do this thing, and it was uh, and it was great. And and so from that, I, I was contacted by a lot. You know, you can imagine. Uh, I didn't think anybody would care about the story. I just thought it was like a stupid, you know, kind of ridiculous. But um, so anyway, I, I, things got away from me. I, really, things really got away from me. But I had to, I, I, there was still the one scientific issue that I didn't understand. And was, since I had two of the biological markers, right, which is uh, at one hand, I had the genetics, which is one leg of a stool, if you will, Another leg of the stool would be the brain pattern, the connectomes the way your brain is wired to respond to certain stimuli. Uh, and then there was this third thing that was missing. And I was in the backyard of my jacuzzi, my mother was over, she liked working in the yard and she was pruning, and she was sitting on a wooden stool, this three-legged wooden stool. And I was sitting there just watching, I, I think I was working on the racing form or something in the jacuzzi. And I said, that's it, it's her. And it, and, and that was the third leg. And, and this became, this was, you know, one of the few times you have a good idea. I think most people would find it obvious. But since all I care about was genetics, not the environment, this was a big aha moment to me. So I said, that's it. Uh, and, and I l- went back and, and I was asked to write a book. You know, I was approached by some people. I had the same editor uh, that, that Barack Obama had when they, they made the mistake about where he was born. So she was like really careful with, uh, by the time she, she got to my book. So ended up uh, writing this book. But uh, so in that, I realized that while I was in Italy writing this book, two papers came out. And it was about these, some of these warrior genes, especially I'm doing the serotonin. And two of them that I had all the alleles for, it turns out they're, if you're abused or abandoned early in life, between birth three years old, bad news. Bad news. This is the trigger point. And this is a classic, great example of epigenetics. That is the, how, how uh, environment and genes interact at a certain time. See, it doesn't happen all the time. And under, So, this is very early in life, it doesn't happen later. Uh, every time you get sick, you have epigenetic changes in your immune system. Right? You know, you get a new bacteria, and then your immune system goes all through these epigenetic. Uh, changes that are turning on and off genes, but it's temporary and it snaps back after you, you know, after a few weeks. But in the case of early abuse, really bad abuse and trauma, uh, you get epigenetic changes which cl- turns these genes on for good. There's no plasticity, so you have these. You know, there's nothing wrong with killing, right? If you're, you're saving your. Family, you can kill to save your family, but there's a time and a place for everything. You know, this, I guess epigenetics goes back to the Bible. And, and, and the same with sex. And it's just that there's the context and the timing is important when you do these things. And the thing is, with people with personality disorders, almost every one of them was abused early on. As, a, as I studied this more and more, between birth and three years old, or abandoned, you know. And uh, and it was true for all all the dictators I looked at, and it was amazing how it went right down the line. So in this early period, those genes, the regulators of the genes, could be methylated and turned on for good. That means your behavior is not context dependent. You're always pissed off, you're always cold, you're always the, not when you should be, because you you can't be really touchy-feely, warm and fuzzy all the time. There's time and a place, but in this case, These genes are turned on and off. So that was an aha thing. And and in looking at my mother, I I said, you know, I had such a great upbringing. Well, it turns out with these two genes that it wasn't just all in one direction. If you had these genes and were abused, you were in big trouble for conduct disorder, and then probably psychopathy or narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, But if you're treated well, it inhibited the other negative effects. And this is it. I said, So it, it's, it's one of these switches that goes either way. So I said I must have been protected because these people, I said these people you know my father, my mother, my grandfather my aunts, my aunt, they all treated me so great. And it was I think kind of a partially a um, oh, oh, just, it was just a, a random thing that, that happened in a sense. And they're all great people anyway. But for me they really spent a lot of time uh, carrying me around and, and nurturing me like they didn't with the other kids. Well, it turns out my mother, uh, she had our, our oldest brother and then they wanted a very large family, but then she had like five miscarriages. Boom, 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 boom. Then when I came along it was, like, you know, I was like the golden child just because I survived. It wasn't anything about acute cute or anything like that in her personality. And then after me there were then several more. Okay, so I was in the middle like an only child of these older brother and younger brother. And then they filled it out. Everything apparently straightened itself out and so they had the six kids. And, but in, in my case, they really t- took care of me, and all my, well, my aunts did, and my grandparents, so it was like one of those, th- th- those events that happen that you really can't explain. It has nothing to do with you, but it's like there, there's this, this casino game with the genes that you inherit, and then if you're lucky enough to have, you know, to offset those genes with a really good environment but you really got lucky. So I just, I really got lucky in this case. And so that was what was missing. And uh, so anyway, I had mentioned this in the TED Talk. And, uh, it, and when I got a call from Simon Mirren after he saw it, like the next day, he says, I've written the episode. Episode 99 is called out Foxed. He says, I know what you're talking about. He says, you're not talking about yourself. You're talking about transgenerational epigenetic violence. That is, hot spots in the world, whether, you know, it's Somalia, New York City, south side of Chicago, Bad parts of Irvine, if there are any, I guess. But places where there is chronic uh, street abuse and bullying and everything like that. So the idea was that after three generations, you would start to alter not only mating patterns, but also you would start to epigenetically change enough people so it would start to become bred into that population. So what you have is non-ending violence because they're keyed to violent behavior. They've inherited this, and this has been shown for metabolic issues uh, there was a, a swedish study and a dutch study that shows it happens for metabolism but also the grandchildren of uh, holocaust survivors had the same nightmares without ever having been abused or having any of those experiences so it's like these behaviors jump a generation or two and it's so a very odd thing and but he you know Simon uh, Miren, he saw that i couldn't believe he got it but he goes that so we that that uh, we went on from there to look at the world in a different way. Um, And so here's that TED talk and everything. And then, so that was, things sort of, uh, we're still at a distance for me. But in 2010, I was asked to give a talk with the prime minister. He was the ex-prime minister of Norway. And so he was talking, they said, could you come and talk about how you take uh, brain activity and genetics, and we have a statistical way of putting it together, and give a talk with him. And uh, on bipolar, and the, what happened was, 2000, he became prime minister and developed full-blown bipolar. Now, this is a, this is a Norwegian. Any European, or especially any Scandinavian, and especially a Norwegian, uh, a person would never admit that they have some sort of psychiatric disorder. Never. And this guy did it, so I saw it was so cool, so I, I said, yeah. So I went over and gave a talk with him, it was like a public, it was like this, but it was, it was a mix of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of, of the public in there, along with the entire psychiatry department. So it was one of those impossible, you don't want to give talks to mi- mixed groups like that. Because you know, half of them are always going, oh, yeah, 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 like this, and the others are going, what are you talking about? It's hard to you know nail exactly in the middle. But at any rate, I had, I had to use my own data. Because of HIPAA and IRB rules, I couldn't tell them how we used other people's data. So I use my own, and so I put up all of my, uh, all of my phenotypes, everything I've had for my life, from birth onwards. You know, you got asthma, you got you know, allergies, I had panic attacks, OCD, all these things like that. Everybody's got these, and so I put lined those up, and it turns out my genetics line up perfectly with this, except for unfortunately obesity. I thought I was going to have a way out with this. I have no obesity genes. It turns out I'm just lazy. So, but the. <laughs> But the rest of these really line up. And I, so I went through this and I showed how we did that and talked about bipolar. Well, after we had all talked, a guy stood up, this older guy. Uh, he goes, thanks for the talk, that was interesting. I said, we, I got two things to tell you. And he's the chair of the psychiatry department at the University of Oslo. He goes, first of all, you're bipolar yourself, you don't know it. Okay. And second thing is we wanna to talk to you afterwards. So I ended up, we ended up at the party of the president of the University of Oslo. And, uh, and after a, you know, a couple hours of talking, all well, these psychiatrists and psychologists stayed with me. We got a little hammered together. But they wanted to talk to me for several hours. At the end of that, they said, by the way, you're probably also a psychopath. And I went, what did you say? And they said, no, he Said you're a borderline, probably a borderline with all these things. Because the they, you know, they were analyzing me while we're talking. You know, they were looking for the tells, because not a lot of tells in psychopathy. And uh, But they, they, they knew personality disorders. So I said, Jesus. So on the way back, I flew on the way back, and I, that's the first time I took it seriously. The first time I took it seriously because I said, these people don't know me. They're clinicians who are just saying what they're seeing. And, and so when I got back, I, I started to ask people. I started with my wife, first of all. I said, and then my brothers, and my sister, and my kids, I said, you got to tell me what you really think of me. I said, I'm not going to be mad or anything. And they all started to open up. And they all had the same story. Separately, they told me. And they said, you're not there. Emotionally, you're not there. That is, you're fun to be around. And you're, you know, interesting and fun. And you know, as a father, you're fun. As a husband, you're kind of interesting guy. But emotionally, you just are not there. They all said the same thing, separately. And and when I heard that, it's this is like zero emotional empathy. Now, there's like four kinds of basic empathy. One axis of this is emotional empathy. The other act, part of that is cognitive empathy. So emotional empathy is like when you are upset, I'm upset too. When you feel happy, I'm happy. It's paralleling and, and really mirroring somebody's and feeling it, their emotions. I don't have that. Uh, I have cognitive empathy, and also most psychopaths do. And it's, this is the opposite of Asperger's and autism. It's exactly the opposite and and so I, and i'm we're involved with a lot of charities and things like that it's not like you don't do good works it's just that you, you know cognitively it's the right thing to do so somebody you understand somebody's in pain or in need and you do something about it that's cognitive empathy so it's it's also called compassion you know as a but when you marry somebody your brother your sister lover you know you want that person to have emotional empathy because that's the real connection and i don't have and they all said that Plus, they call me a jerk in about 20 different ways. But nonetheless, uh, and, and then I went from there and started asking different friends and, you know, brothers. And they all pretty much said the same thing. My mother held back. She goes, oh, you're such a good boy. And so she was the only one lying. Uh, but at any rate, uh, so, so that's what happened. Finally, after a couple of years, I was then, you know, psychoanalyzed. Right? Went through psychiatric testing for this and everything. And here is the summary from one of the psychiatrists. And you can see there, JF, I'm Jim Fowle, satisfies most, if not all, the psychiatric symptoms and psychoanalytical characteristics of a psychopath, along with the associated affective symptoms. But he notably lacks most of the behavioral consequences of such a psychiatric pattern. Uh, In other words, he is able to inhibit psychological traits that would would have otherwise made him a full-blown psychopath. So... What, in talking to the psychiatrists uh, and, and the psychologists who know about personality disorders, they said, well, your thoughts and your, your drives and what you think and dream about are completely psychopathic. You just never do any of this stuff, which was, and it, you know, it was kind of interesting because if you look at my behavior overtly, I'm like i a regular guy. But inside, I was like, really, you know, really not so <laughs> wonderful. But you don't know this because you're, it's in your own head. You assume everybody has this stuff. Well, apparently, people don't have it to the extent that uh, psychopaths do, which is really dark stuff. And, but I, I just do i never acted them out. So I, I guess this is, you know, part partially being protected by those genes, and also, you know, being loved a lot. You know, growing up really mitigated that. That's—we'll never know, but uh, you know, this is this is a guess now. Um, and so, if you look at those psychopathic traits. Uh, there's the hair test, Robert Hare's test, and he did this in a prison population. It started with male adults and then went to teenage males and then to females. And there's usually two factors. But the first factor is called aggressive narcissism. And it, there's some charm in this. There's some charm in that. And, and the second kind is it's called it's mostly antisocial personality disorder uh, plus socially deviant lifestyle. Nobody likes that. This is the criminal part. So there's this one sort of... Cute con artist part of it, the first group of traits. And then there's this really negative, very negative thing. Even psychopaths don't like each other because of that. Really, really bad stuff. And there's another uh, test that was, came late, later that's more useful for normal people to see if they have the traits. Because you, you may have psychopathic traits, three of 20, but not be a categorical clinical psychopath. And this is true for most people. So the wrong way to look at it is whether am I am I categorically this or categorically that. It's like, what traits do I have and how much of those? That's the way these things are inherited and the way they develop clinically. And this is the way the, uh, the psychiatry has changed over the past 15 years, 10 years, the, the way we're trying to uh, get it to go, and which it's going that way. And so the other one is this psychopathic personality inventory. And there the first cluster of traits is called... Fearless dominance. It's basically when somebody walks into the room and they got that light around them, like they own it. Everybody sees this, and these traits are interpreted as leadership. And 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 like I'm going to follow that person. This is the tough son of a bitch, and I'm going to you know he's going to work for me, and he's charming and he's glib and he's got all this. He's I want to invest with him. I want to you know elect elect him president. Uh, and so, there's a surprise in this though. And uh, the other one is called impulsive antisociality, antisociality, which is more the Machiavellian stuff. So it's like the hair second one, which is not charming traits uh, so much. And then there's another one that's cold-heartedness. So this is the way you know these traits that you can be tested for. And then you can take the gene alleles and then regress them against these to see you know, which ones uh, line up for you and your behaviors. Uh, there's the epigenetic effects, which I had mentioned, so I won't go, go into that. So, one question that comes out of this is like, you know, what's more important, nature or nurture, right? This is a very fundamental question that goes back to Plato. And, um, and, and if you look at Plato and Hobbes and, and Avicenna, you know, a whole lineage of 3,000 years of philosophers, it turns out Plato was right. Okay, what we know from the past 10 years of genetic epigenetic research is that you're really born with a full almost a full not personality but you're born with a lot of things like you you have this inherent knowledge of goodness inherent knowledge of, of fear inherent knowledge of beauty and you and you know how to swim when you're born and then you, you we unlearn all these things you know in the first few years and so you're born with this so this was kind of what plato was saying and uh and so he was uh, correct in that but if you look at the question in a, in a modern sense which is Is it like genes or environment? And the answer is yes and no. But it's not like it's half and half, because people want to say, is it 50-50? It turns out to be exactly the wrong way to think about it. It's If you have the genes that will code for these behaviors and you're abused, then the environment means everything. If you have protective genes, uh, uh, genes that are associated, those alleles that are associated uh, with resilience, and uh, then the, the environment means almost nothing. You know these kids, they you know, like one years old, and they f- fall down the stairs, and they get up laughing. You can't get to them, right? And this is a true thing. And some people are very easy to get to, and they've harmed very easily. So the answer to the question is, if you've got the genetics, then the environment can mean everything. If you don't have the genetics, the environment means nothing. So that's different than 50-50. It may end up being sounding 50-50, but that's not the answer. So that's a a fundamental message I'd like you to uh, remember with this. Some of you, I can see you going, yes, you already know this, but this is a a way to remember that. Uh, Well, uh, one question was, and I think I've got five minutes, uh, what do you do with this information? So with my personal life, a few years ago, I uh, decided to uh, harness my own narcissism because I knew... You couldn't reverse a personality disorder in an adult, like psychopathy. It's not reversible. But I said, I'm, I, I'm strong enough. I can do it. For anybody, so you've got to use your own narcissism a little bit. And so what I did was I pulled an experiment with my wife. And I started every day, every time I had an interaction with her, whether it's like, who do you pour the coffee for, or the wine first, or who cleans up, you know, being a good roommate thing. But also, do you go to her aunt's funeral? Because that's the stuff I'd end up down at Blackie's, down in Newport Beach. Instead of, you know, makeup. I'd do that stuff. So some of it was very simple. Just being, a, you know, like a regular guy. And, uh, and I followed it every day for two months. And after two months, she goes, what has come over you? I said, what, I said, what do you mean? She goes, you're like a really good guy now. I said, and I said, you, I said, don't take it seriously. It's just an experiment. And <laughs> She's got a good sense of humor, so she took it. And I said, I'm just trying to go through and see if I could change it. But I found out a couple of things. One is every day I was so exhausted, it was so exhausted, that I started to sleep more and more. Now I always was able to get on with four hours of sleep and I found I started to sleep in like six hours, seven hours. And I realized what a hard thing it is to be like a good guy or a good gal. For me it was very difficult. It was absolutely exhausting. Uh, but also I slowed down. I wasn't so glib. And in thinking about it I said, well you know most people, and, and I watched some of my friends who had kids, like Larry, and another couple of friends who were kind of my age, or, you know, close enough, and how they sacrificed for their, for their kids and stuff I, I wouldn't do. I could see them doing it when nobody was watching. So there were a couple of behavioral things, uh, and, but uh, in thinking about why uh, the, the, the glibness is there in people with, uh, you know, psychopathy and, and, and why I was slowing down is most people when they interact with somebody, they're concerned with the effect they're having on that person. You know, am, am I upsetting this person? Am giving a bad information? Am I going to get upset? I wouldn't think of that. Once I started doing it, you know, it's this loop. You, you have this cold cognitive loop, executive function here, but then you loop that information down to the base of your uh, frontal lobe and your amygdala, your limbic system, and that processes what is the outcome it's going to have on other people. It's part of the social brain. Well, that, pl- in me, it's turned off completely. So I, you know, in a psychopath, so you never have to make the loop. So therefore, you can go, you are know, like, oh, yeah, I got this, I got this. You're very glib, right? And so that made, you know, a lot of sense. So I, I started doing that with other people, uh, and, and they, they all kind of said the same thing. So I've been trying to do that, but I still have to think about it all the time. Uh, all the time, because my natural instinct is just to have fun, Right? And then the last thing is, what do you do with your professional life? So I sat down in the backyard of my house with two close friends. Uh, On the left, there's Tom Stevenson, and he was the guy that got $40 million for the SETI telescope. That's how well he can raise funds, you know, for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and a bunch of other things for the arts and great fundraiser and great writer, and, and uh, to my right there's Fabio Machardi, who's a professor here. He's from Italy, but he's a professor in psychiatry, and so we'd start, we decided to get together, what do we do with this information, and so we came up with the three prongs of attack, which we're still doing to this day, and uh, so it was, we didn't know what to call ourselves. It was like a garage thing, you know, a, a garage band, and we just, I, you know, I didn't know what to call. It was like the three musketeers that had been taken. Uh, my wife had another name for us. Uh, because of the amount of, of beef and Cabernet we were going through. but So instead of that, we came up with the idea we'd call ourselves a global consortium, right? Three <laughs> clowns. Right? And so since then, uh, since then we've been, you know, working, uh, I, I've worked with different groups on this, this idea of transgenerational epigenetic violence. I've met a few times with Black Lives Matter, the head of that. And, but also uh, did some studies in North Africa with the... With Bedouins and Berbers, you know, the nomads that are there, testing them for different genes, because we're wondering, the beginning of war, what did it have to do with, in terms of behaviors and, and all that. Um, and then, that's it. And, and, and I've become involved a lot with the, with the Pentagon. I was just there, you know, this month and last month, uh, working with the, the Pentagon on, you know, you're not going to get rid of war. But you might as well make it uh, not kinder, but uh, purer, I guess. And so we're looking at things, of, for example, how to make a better warfighter, uh, make sure people coming in are not prone to PTSD or suicide, but also optimizing their behavior because it's a much smaller force. So we did that, and I also um, uh, work, and I'm, and I'm on the, the uh, Arts and Technology Council at the Vatican. And, and there the Pope is trying to find a way to uh, transmit this idea. He calls tenderness, and it's really all the different ways of four different types of um, of empathy. So we're using uh, virtual reality stuff and music and all this stuff. So it's you know this is like after you retire, what do you do when something crazy happens? So that's kind of the story. But thanks for letting me go over too.